so often we're going to an audition to try to do well as an actor or make an impression or do it right or do it in the way that they want. When if you really focus on, I'm going to figure out if this suspect is guilty. It's a, it is, I'm telling you, it is such a little key to happier and more fulfilling auditions. You're just doing the character's job. That character doesn't give a shit if you're a good actor or not. That character doesn't care if you get cast or if the casting director likes you. That character needs to find out if the suspect is guilty. Listening to Inside Acting, a podcast dedicated to demystifying the inner and the outer game of success in the entertainment industry. I'm Trevor Elgott. And I'm AJ Meyer. And at episode 296, Trev sits down for an updated conversation with community favorite Michael Kostroff, a prolific stage and screen actor and creator of the game changing Audition Psych 101 that you've heard us talk about on the show before. Uh, today, Michael shares a few tips on how to be funny. Yes, how to be funny, especially if you're inherently unfunny, and how and why judgment is the death of your artistic authenticity and exploration. The simple mindset he's employed to build his extensive resume of TV roles, how he's weathered a recent six-month casting dry spell, and a whole lot more. Episode 296, stick with us. Support for this episode of Inside Acting is brought to you in part by Rehearsal Pro, the current and most awesomest version of Rehearsal yet. It's an essential app for every actor, and it's now available in the iTunes App Store for your iOS device. If you want to learn your lines really quickly, really reliably, and have fun doing it, if you want to be off book confidently every single time for your auditions, if you want to explore your character, make stronger choices about the scene, walk into that office with confidence and book everything about it, go to rehearsal.pro slash IAP right now, and you can learn all about the great new features in this newest version of Rehearsal. It's a groundbreaking, absolutely essential app that every actor should have in their toolkit. Check it out, rehearsal.pro slash IAP. Yo, 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 Trevenator. What's up, dog? Man, we have a lot to get to in this episode. Uh, I think there's one or two listener questions that we're actually going to skip because of all of the news and um, and other things going on. Uh, so uh, we have some uh, membership, some highlights from the membership, right, to get to first? Yeah, there's just a cool uh, conversation happening in there. Uh, Brittany asks for advice on thrival jobs in there, which is a, a common actor obstacle. Um, and there's some really good suggestions from both uh, our very own Jen Levin and longtime awesome supporter listener, uh, Allie Everts. So uh, check it out inside the membership. It's just about thrival jobs. And, and Brittany does a great job of sort of breaking down exactly what difficulties she's facing. And there's some really good solutions in there. And um, interestingly enough, you know, we've been talking about van life. Like you and I have sort of been fantasizing about buying vans and just being complete, like artistic digital nomads. 
there's a lot of YouTube videos out there that people have made from their vans as they're on the road, talking about you know the top ten or twelve or sometimes even more ways that they make money on the road. And it seems like almost all of it would apply directly to uh, someone who's you know also running a creative career in tandem with paying the bills. So there's some stuff to sort of like research outside of the membership, but also jump into the membership to get involved in that conversation. I just wanted to kind of highlight that. And uh, just on this note as well, Jen also uh, shared a really good blog post that she did for Ms. in the Biz a few years ago, and she links to that in uh, the membership as well. It's a top 10 day jobs for actors post, and she does a really great job of summarizing uh, how and why uh, some of these jobs are ideal for actors. So check it out inside the membership. Nice, man. I'm looking forward to checking that out. I, uh, I'm just seeing this on the uh, on the outline. I remember looking at Jen's uh, blog post back then, but uh, it's been a long time, so I'm excited to revisit all of this. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, we, we also invite everyone to continue to uh, use the hashtag Working Wednesday on Wednesdays, of course, on Twitter. Um, that it's been growing, like, uh, it's sort of taking on a life of its own. It's really exciting to see. And, um, there's a really cool way to bring together the, the, the community around, uh, acting and IEP and, uh, see what people are up to. I, uh, I have found that the last several Wednesdays I've just been, uh, at my thrival job. So, uh, now that we've been talking about thrival jobs, it kind of gives me a good excuse to go, you know what? This is working. <laughs> It's literally punching a punching a clock. So uh, maybe I'll start posting some photos from work. Hey, yeah, yeah, a little iPhone X action, HomePod. You got a lot of products you guys are launching uh, in the next few months. Yeah, it's gonna be a busy, busy time for That's sure. Exciting. That's really exciting. Yeah. And speaking of exciting, how's that for a segue? <clears throat> well, um, well job. Yeah, well job, well played. We have been, uh, we probably should have been talking about this uh, much further in advance. Obviously, the number of episodes is getting closer and creeping closer and closer and closer to a milestone episode. Episode 300 is uh, shortly upon us. And as uh, many longtime listeners know, we have uh, held a a little shindig or some kind of event uh, for episodes 100 and 200. We're not actually actually going to be doing a live recording this time. Uh, episodes 100 and 200 were around a live recording uh, of, of some. They were actually both at the SAG after the SAG Foundation. Um, and, uh, you know, episode 100 was about was a panel of SAG after employees. And episode 200 was a panel of most of the sort of higher up creators and the showrunner of uh, TV's uh, Defiance. Episode 300, we've been working on secretly, not so secretly. Um, You guys don't necessarily know the content, but uh, Jen and Trevor and myself have all been kind of teasing it out on social media, what we're going to be doing. So we're not going to have a live recording of the episode, but we are going to have a party that's right. Come party with the uh, IAP. It'll be somewhere in Los Angeles. <laughs> Location is TBA. We're still working on on uh, figuring that out. But uh, uh, it will be sometime in December. Oh, we're also working out the date. Yeah, so we're looking at Monday, December 11th, but that is a tentative date. So just pencil 
entire month of December. Don't see your families for the holiday. You're going to a party that IAP is hosting for episode 300. But it's going to be exciting. We're hoping to have a lot of the guests from episode uh, 300 uh, uh, show up, maybe some live Q&A action. And um, we're also hoping to do a screening that will sort of coordinate. I'm being very vague on purpose. That will sort of coordinate with um, with the 300 300th episode content so yeah if that wasn't confusing enough i don't know what is but trevor do you have anything you'd like to add or save me from uh just the big takeaway being that there is a big event we'd love to see you at coming up in la at some point in the next 30 to 45 to possibly 60 days um we know it's the holidays so things get kind of crazy where we're trying to get it sort of earlier uh, rather than later to minimize conflicts that people might have. But um, yeah, just be be listening. Be tuned into our newsletter and our social media feeds. And of course, the episodes will be releasing more details about this as it comes up. But it's going to be a fun time. We're, we're working on a lot of cool stuff to hopefully um, have as part of this. So yeah, episode 300 and and the accompanying party coming up uh, soonish. <laughs> yes, thanks for adding in the ish. Yeah. yeah. Um. So we've got a big uh, sort of elephant in the room issue to tackle. Uh, and before we do, I just think uh, we should probably do our sponsorship uh, placement first, and then we'll take the rest of the uh, the first part of the bookends here to kind of uh, go over this. So uh, this episode, as many of our episodes, is, of course, brought to you in part by VO2GoGo.com, the award-winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best VO Training four years in a row. Visit at vo2gogo.com slash start for a free getting started in voiceover online class that'll help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. That's vo, the number two, gogo.com slash start. We've been remiss uh, in terms of not talking about this issue, but uh, I I do have to say, not necessarily as an excuse, uh, but it did sort of break wide open while I was still um, in Spain and so we were kind of doing this like solo episode uh, thing. And then the first episode back, I really did want to talk, you know, I know this is selfish and I will fully admit it, but I really did want to talk about the fact that, you know, Jasmine and I got engaged. I was really excited about that. And I didn't necessarily want this to be sort of clouding that. So we got called out uh, by some people on on social media, rightly so, for not talking about um, the Harvey Weinstein issue and what's going on in the industry right now. And so I, you know, I, like I said, it's not really an excuse. I'm just kind of explaining sort of the chronology of what happened and, uh, and, and, and admitting to being, you know, just kind of selfish. Like I was really excited. It was a big event in my life and I really wanted to, to talk about that and didn't really want to talk about this fucking guy, uh, on top of it. So, um, you know, uh, please forgive us, but, um, we've sort of dedicated the rest of this, um, this time before jumping into, uh, the interview to kind of, uh, to kind of address it and talk about it and, uh, explore it a bit. Um, I'm wondering Trevor, because you and I actually haven't had a chance to like talk about this issue in any sort of in-depth way, just as like friends and colleagues and fellow artists in the industry, in Los Angeles, in the entertainment industry. Uh, I'm wondering, I, I don't even know what your thoughts around the whole thing have, have been um, since, since it sort of came to light. Yeah. Um, 
It's it's been um, I I don't know, man. I, I'm a little bit uh, all over the place with it, to be completely honest. Uh, it's something that everybody who is at all in any way sort of taking part in Western mainstream culture. It's something that they just sort of know, that they understand, that that happens. Uh, the casting couch has been a, a sort of, you know, running joke, just the idea of what it is and what it stands for and, and what happens. Everybody sort of acknowledged it in a joking way as, as long as I've been in the industry, as long as I've even been thinking about being in the industry since I was a kid. Um, there were sort of jokes and, you know, story like people would poke fun at me and say, oh, you know, don't end up in porn. You know, you're going to end up in porn. You're going to end up on someone's casting couch. And it was always sort of funny, but I never thought about it beyond that really um, until all these people started coming forward and I realized how pervasive it is. And I've I've been really sitting with it because... I'm like being very careful about how much to say here. Uh, cause I, I don't know if you know this AJ, I think I've hinted at it, but I, I actually, I have also been a victim of this and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of focus around men taking advantage of women. Uh, and that I think is probably what happens more often than not. But, um, there's been some talk about men being taken advantage of either by women or by other men, uh, and manipulated and coerced and, um, it's very difficult for men to talk about. It's very sort of, um, emasculating and I, more and more men are coming forward and, and saying, yeah, like, Hey, this has happened to me. And, um, when I first moved out here years and years and years ago, and I had no idea what I was doing, I fell into, um, that trap as well. And I didn't have the maturity or the courage to, understand what was happening until it had gotten to a very advanced place. And I also didn't understand how to get myself out of it. And, uh, it's, it's, um, it's something that's been very potent for me, this whole thing. And I've been sort of back and forth about jumping on the me too bandwagon. I don't think I'm ready yet, but, uh, but yeah, man, it's, it's, it's a very real close to home thing. And, um, it's, uh, I'm very, um, activated by it i guess you could say yeah it's uh triggering yeah yeah well wow well thank you for your vulnerability yeah i never thought about the fact that yeah there's like these jokes that people make about it like it's like it's laughable like don't don't be you know suckered into the sort of casting couch thing and i didn't realize that this being a trigger for you was also you know potentially contributing to our sort of you know skirting around, uh, uh, the issue. And of course you are, you are in control of your own story. So you, you, you sh can share or not as much as, you know, you, you want to, uh, I think that there is in some ways some, some sort of, um, I don't know if hope is the right word, but some, some sort of hope fact that so much of it is coming to light and so much of it is, um, being, um, put out there in, in such a public way because one of the best articles that I read <clears throat> about the whole issue and I wish I knew who wrote it uh, I can't remember his name he, he's a he's a very well-known and well-respected writer in the industry someone who worked with um, 
Harvey Weinstein in the early days of, of um, his production company. And Harvey sort of put him on the map. Um, I feel, uh, I feel just awful forgetting his name, but he wrote this fantastic article and the whole theme of the article was everybody knew. Yeah. Like everybody knew everyone, men, women, talented, untalented, working, not working, winning awards, not winning awards. They're in the room, not in the room, by his side, not by his side. Everybody knew. And he and and the and the sort of he was calling people out for the mock outrage that it happened. And he was like, you were there. You were in the same rooms that I was in with him. You were in the same at the same parties as me. I know you were there. You can't pretend to be outraged. And then he had this remorse for having, you know, felt like he turned away or turned a blind eye or, or in some other way perpetuated the, the issue. And I think more, I think if more people could take that stance of admitting, yeah, I may not have been a perpetrator myself, but I kind of stood by and watched it happen, then we could make even, even more progress, even faster, um, on this issue. I don't know that I've ever been in a position of power enough to to sort of take advantage of um, of that position of power to like coerce someone into doing something for me. But I'm a I'm a big I'm a I'm a I'm a guy. I'm a large guy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm over six feet. I'm I'm you know, I have an athletic build. I'm a I'm a big person. And, you know, uh, from the time from like college age until probably four or five years ago, I thought I was like the most charming, you know, person uh, on the planet. So I think in that combination, I, I, I can almost guarantee without being able to point to like a specific instance, I can almost guarantee that I have done something that has made some female or potentially even male, I don't know, uncomfortable. I feel quite remorseful about that, especially not being able to, to, to name it. And I think that what's most important as we've talked about many, many times on, on the podcast is just about awareness. We get to be aware of that. This is happening and do whatever we can, whatever our part is in it to make a change here. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if you've had any thoughts on that too. Like what, what could possibly be, you know, the, the difference moving forward? Um, you know, that's, that's a great question. It's interesting because part of what's happening right now reminds me in this detached way, please don't hate me for making this comparison, but this is sort of kind of what comes up because sometimes I wonder if someone really disliked someone else in the industry and there was no truth to these claims, it, it almost feels like a witch hunt sometimes. I mean, again, I, I have, you know, experienced my share of being on the sort of receiving end of this, the, the sort of victim side of things. So I'm not belittling anybody's experience whatsoever, but it, it, I'm just really glad we're talking about it 
I'm just really glad that the conversation is happening and that more and more people are feeling empowered and safe coming forward with these stories because it's not okay. You know, it's a story that's as old as humankind. Unfortunately, this is just kind of what happens with people. Um, there's good and evil in the world. It doesn't mean it needs to be that way going forward. So I'm really happy to hear uh, more and more people sharing these stories. I'm reminded of something that my uh, professor and advisor in college said to me before we graduated. And I think I've shared this on the show before, but he gave us a little list of five or 10 things to take forward into our careers, you know, wherever we end up. Uh, and they're just like little maxims or little mantras or, or sort of tips on, on how to sort of navigate the industry. And, and one of them said, uh, you can forgive, but you never have to forget. And I think that it's, uh, important to keep that in mind when it comes to something like this, having experienced something, you know, in this, in this, um, realm, I understand the importance of forgiveness. There's a saying somewhere in, in the, I don't know, ancient Zen saying or something that they say that, you know, holding a grudge or, or something like that is kind of like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. And, um, I've experienced that for many years. And, um, it wasn't until a few years ago, actually in the emotional intelligence training that I was able to really come to terms with what it was. And I, um, learned to practice because it's a moment to moment thing, learn to practice forgiving this person. So, you know, it's a complex layered issue. It's very individual, very unique, very emotional. Obviously I'm just really glad we're talking about it. I want to say one thing about what you said earlier about the, the witch hunt, <clears throat> because it would be very easy. Um, Jasmine and I had a very similar conversation when we were in Spain and it all started coming to pass. You know, it was sort of triggering for me because <clears throat> at first it sounded like she was, was saying we need to forgive immediately, uh, kind of what you were just saying, Trevor, like we need to forgive so that we can kind of move forward. And I was like, wait a second, like, don't we need to hold these people accountable? But once we finally got onto the same page, I just want to see if this is kind of what you were talking about, Trevor, when you were having a hard time articulating exactly what it was. But it's important that when, when people come forward, men, women, especially women, that they are believed, right? That's a really important aspect to this. And another important aspect, and I think this would summarize, um, Jasmine's point, uh, although I, you know, I would love to, to, to ask her is the problem. What do we, we learned this in, in, in those exact, uh, emotional intelligence trainings. The problem cannot be solved at the level at which it was created. Right. So, so her point was constantly focusing on the shaming of the people who are the perpetrators puts the focus and the energy in the wrong place. Like we're not raising the consciousness. We're not progressing. We're not moving forward. We're not doing whatever it takes to make a, to make a change, to take that next step. Does that kind of hit, hit home with what you were just saying? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. It reminds me of another saying. I'm just full of sayings. <laughs> These little nuggets of wisdom have come to me throughout my life, and I just hang on to them and keep them in a little sort of mind purse, and then I just pull them out constantly throughout the day. But uh, it was a millionaire mind intensive with D. Harvecker, and he said, where attention goes, energy flows, and results show. So basically that which you focus on expands. So 
the that that law is completely unbiased it has no preference like no matter where you put your energy is where you're going to see an expansion of results of some kind and it's really easy for humans to uh you know cast judgment and shame people and burn the witch and all those things uh it's really easy that's that's sort of it's almost like i'm not saying that it's that people shouldn't be brought to justice but i am saying that it's the lazy person's way out to end there. I think we need to go one step further and imagine, like you were asking earlier, to to imagine what, what an alternative reality could look like where this doesn't even exist. It's not even a blip on anyone's radar because this new thing exists. And so where attention goes, energy flows and, and results show. And I think that's... Um, I think that is absolutely huge. You can't forgive somebody and move on and create something new without having some sort of seed of a hint of a of a whiff of what that new thing could be. It's important, I think, for us to, to put a little energy towards creating something new rather than, um, you know, uh, dissing and hating and judging the, the system and the people that have exploited it. Yeah, that's a really good point, Trev. And, you know, and I like that you said that it doesn't take it doesn't necessarily take the place of justice or holding people accountable. It's just, you know, what's next? You keep saying, I'm glad we're talking about it. And the thing is, like, it's an ongoing conversation. It is very layered, as you mentioned. And I think we could talk about it for a long time and we could we could unpack different aspects of it. And I want to make sure that we are sort of lending our energy and our time to the more positive aspects as opposed to the, you know, maintaining the system that perpetuates it. So, you know, I I would like to at this point sort of reach out to our listeners, especially our female listeners and especially any listener, male or female who uh, or otherwise who has been, you know, victimized by this or has, you know, some, some thoughts on, you know, what did we miss today? What else would you like to hear talked about on the, on the podcast? And I also want to use this as an opportunity to tease the fact that we, oh, I didn't want to tease this until later, but this is, this seems like a perfect opportunity. We're, we're currently putting together an all female takeover of the podcast. And of course that was, you know, brought to us by some of the the females involved with the podcast, specifically um, Jasmine, she um, is sort of her brainchild. So, you know, it's something that we are that we we want to be conscious of. And you know, in the past, there was a time where just because of scheduling, we had several you know male white male guests just lined up one right after the, after, after the other after the other. And some of our female listeners were like, Hey, what about the ladies? So, you know, it's um it's something that's important to us. And if we ever um, if you ever see or hear us sort of straying from a mission of inclusion and diversity and, and, and addressing these issues head on, like call us out. Like I said, we got called out a little bit on, on social media and we welcome that. We're not, um, we're not going to like be like, pretend like we didn't hear you or try to avoid an issue because it's too difficult or something, you know? Well, uh, <laughs> I feel like if Michael's listening to this, he's going to be like, thanks for setting me up, 
uh, with a hilarious conversation, guys, because uh, a lot I did get a chance to listen to part one of this interview. And a lot of it is, uh, you know, he, he not only does he have some great things to say, he has some a lot of, uh, you know, fun, his, his sense of humor is just fantastic around it all. Um I do want to mention, you know, we have turned away a lot of people who are selling a class or a product or a book or whatever. And I just want to say, like, one of the reasons that we love Michael and, and talk about him a lot and, are, and we're willing to bring him back on uh, the show is because in the interview itself, he's giving everything away for free. Like he like everything he is saying in these interviews is in some part you know, part of the, uh, the workshops and the books that he, you know, wor works on. So, you know, I think that's, uh, that's the, the distinction between Michael and someone else who might be trying to <clears throat> pitch themselves to the podcast and, and to, so that they can come on and, and sell something. Um, you know, not only is he giving a lot of stuff away for free here on the show, but he is also like not charging a lot of money for his workshops because he gets it. He's not doing it for the money. He's doing it because he loves it. And he knows that a lot of actors who are working on getting better in the audition room probably aren't rolling in it. And, and, and he, he actively works with actors who may have trouble paying the full price for um, the, the workshop. So he's very um, open to finding a way to get you to the workshop. Yeah, so enjoy uh, this uh, part one of the updated interview with Michael Kostroff, and we'll catch you on the other side. Hey everybody, this is Trev, and I'm really, really excited to be sitting back down again with the one and only Michael Kostroff. Now, savvier listeners may remember Michael's name from episodes 225 and 226, which was like maybe a year or two ago now uh, at this point. But we talked about his uh, his his career uh, going from a sort of uh gosh how did you describe it michael you you described it as being uh like a painfully shy or, or horrifically bad auditioner and and sounds right yeah it was, it was really cool to hear about this journey from somebody who was 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 self-described introverted that it was almost like damaging to someone who's had such a prolific career and now even teaches one of the best and most powerful workshops i've ever attended on how to reframe your relationship to auditions so that you love that process and you go in there and you just crush it every time feeling like you've, you're doing your best work it's it's just it's a real gift what you do for the industry both by example and by by teaching. So really excited well, to have you. you. <laughs> thank you. You make me sound like the Dalai Lama, but I. But <laughs> <laughs> no, you know I think I think it's it's uh, the reason that I'm able to teach the workshop that I teach and the way that I teach it is because I took the full journey from being the crappiest auditioner <laughs> ever to kind of being okay at it now so yeah yeah and that that's that's so true too i find that those people are almost always the best sort of mentors and guides the people that have like been through the crap and they just like look i know i know how bad it can possibly be 
here's what I learned. So if you guys um, want to connect with that aspect of the story, Michael's journey, and then some of the things we talked about before, be sure to check out episodes 225 and 226. We'll link to those in the show notes uh, for this episode on uh, the podcast website. But a lot has happened since we last chatted. You were in Wizard of Lies, which we alluded to back in the in the previous episodes, but you played Robert De Niro's brother, which had to have been super cool. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then, of, of course, um, you've also got a new workshop that you're doing called Comedy for the Unfunny. Is that right? Yes. I like the name of it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do a lot of audition coaching. Um, I, I love it. I, it's just something that I, I really enjoy working with actors uh, and having them come in and be freaking out about an audition and then leave going, I can't wait to do this. That's my favorite thing. And in that work, I've worked with a lot of actors who say, look, I'm just not funny. I just don't do comedy. And that, that's that's their take on it. They're like, they have it in their mind that it's a certain bag of tricks or there's certain things that you just have to know how to do. And I've given a lot of thought to that because I do think that some people are naturally funny and you can't teach that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people who's very instinctive about comedy. People come to me for advice on it. Uh, it's, sometimes I just go, well, if I move the coffee cup on that line, it's going to be funny and I don't know why it just is. You can't teach that. But what I've been doing with my strictly drama folks is uh, teaching them about comedy through the tools that they know, which is, you know, uh, stakes and and all the basics, the acting basics of stakes and objectives and obstacles. These things are present in comedy and people are surprised by that. They're like, I I thought you just had to be very fake. And I'm like, no, you have to be very, very real. One of the discoveries that I've made through this is that the, the situation is rarely funny to the character. (laughs) <laughs> it's usually, usually it's deadly serious. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I was one of the understudies for Max Bialystok on, on the first tour of the producers. And somebody said, I like what you're doing. What are you doing? And I said, I'm, I am doing Greek tragedy. That is absolutely not a joke. I am playing the highest possible stakes. There is no other outcome but one. I've got to, this character has got to get recognition on Broadway again, and he'll bite through a steel wall if that's what it takes. It's the, it's just stakes, like the highest stakes, and kind of accepting those stakes in a ridiculous situation. Sorry, I'm, I, I, I revved up on this subject, so I feel like I've now taken over the conversation. No, no, it's 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 great because, because you know, you one, the one way you put it in the email to me was you said, you said that you've had some discoveries around playing economy, I'm sorry, playing comedy. I saw economy when I looked at that word for some reason. I guess that's sort of another story. Um, Please keep it. Don't yeah, cut it. Yeah. <laughs> Play, playing comedy when you're not instinctively funny. And what you just described is is so great in theory, but I, I almost like I'm trying to think about you know, I'm projecting ahead in my to the you know in the future in my head, and I'm thinking like, okay, so next time you have this funny scene, just ramp up the stakes. But how do how do you do that in practice? How do you coach actors to do that in tangible like advice form? Great question, because of course it's not just as simple as that. Uh, you know, in my workshop, I talk about um, some recurring comedic elements that people could look like look for. Like for example, disproportionate reactions. Somebody who has a very mild reaction to a very dire circumstance or an overreaction to a very minor circumstance. They're they're weeping on the floor because they burnt the toast or they're eh, about a war, you know. So it, that's that's just an example of something you see a lot in comedy and uh, things like um, people in the wrong job or a, a, a warped self-perception, you know, uh, mismatched mismatched cultures and energies. And it sounds very dry and technical, but what we do is we build sort of a toolkit so when people – crack open a scene, they're like, oh, I see where the joke is. And now that I see where the joke is, I've got to get on that bus and drive that to the nth degree. 
Interesting. Yeah. There's like, it's like there's mechanical things you can identify in the script. It's like, oh, here's that trope or that trick. And I can just identify that. And then I have a toolbox to unpack it with. It's, I mean, it's obviously it's not scientific. But, for example, we, we were watching a scene from um, uh, The Pink Panther. And I'm like, okay, so what from our list is going on? Well, he's a guy in the wrong job. He thinks he's fooling people and he's not. So he has a warped self-perception, right? There are two people with different different ideas of the story in the same scene. It's like all these things that we can go, okay, well, that's now I understand what they're doing that gets us to the funny, you know? I, I feel like when I describe it, it sounds very dry, but we have so, so many laughs kind of uncovering these things. Like I said, I've always been very instinctive about comedy. I, I haven't necessarily been this analytical before. One of the things that I've really learned through teaching this is that the extent to which we have to make a case for our own character and not be judgmental, not say, well, she's overreacting. To, to, it's just like playing a villain. You can't go, well, I'm evil. I'm bad. You know, the character's driven by something like they want love or they want recognition or they, they, life hasn't lived up to their expectations. And if you, if you will just not judge the ridiculousness of the situation and commit to that and make it real for that character, it's so damn funny. One of the scenes I always use is the odd couple. And I say to the guys, forget funny, forget being funny. There's nothing funny in this scene. If you're Felix, you have a worldview. There are certain things you do and don't do, and anything else is barbaric. You don't put your feet up on the table where you eat food. It's barbaric. And when somebody does that, it's, it's mind-boggling. Now, what we have to do is drive that bus to the very end of that path and go, it's, it's insane. It's, in, it's, it's, it's impossible. It's, it's crass, right? And if you're, and if you're Oscar – the whole reason that I'm not living with a woman is so I don't have to get nagged. And, you know, like, what's the point of being a man if I can't, if I can't put my fucking feet up on the, on the, on the table? So it's, it's, these, it's these very strong worldviews that don't go well together. Anyway, it's, it's really been a blast because, as you know, I, I kind of love kind of empowering people who think they're not empowered. You know, I want to comment about that because you, you said earlier that <clears throat> you said you you encounter a lot of actors who don't see themselves as comedic actors. They see themselves as like I am a dramatic actor and that's just how I'm built. And that's just my burden to, to bear. But I, I, I've never seen myself like that. I've always seen comedy as a skill set or drama as a skill set. But you actually do you run into a lot of actors who just feel like they just they're just stuck in this one mode of expression. I'll put it this way. The, the workshop is called Comedy for the Unfunny, and people sign up. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. You know, Obviously, now yeah. No, it's not limited to people who are not funny. I mean, I have, I, it's sort of a facetious name. I have people who come who are, are quite good at comedy who just want sort of a new take on it and, and new tools and, and to increase it. And it's sort of – it's funny. I laugh because uh, I'm best known for all these dramatic roles, which – is so not my thing, <laughs> you know. Comedy is so my world, you know. That's that's what I dig doing, but uh, you know, I think uh, people mostly know me from The Wire and The Deuce and all these serious shows. But um, what I think is great is that I'm I'm giving these actors this experience where they're making people laugh in class by being really truthful in their work and really, uh, you know, building the stakes and building the case for the character and telling the truth and uh, being honest in their work. And and I think. Uh, a lot of dramatic actors, they just don't want to feel like they're being phony. It's funny. I do some very broad comedy, but I don't like lying. I just make – it has to be that important and that real for the character. Now, is it is it a one-night thing like Audition Psych is or is it, uh, is it multiple? I, I've done it as a, um, a one-day intensive. I find it's better as a two-day intensive, which is how I'm 
how I'm doing it these days. I've done it uh, here in New York. I've done it in Atlanta. I did it in Vancouver, which was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, the two day format is really it gives people a chance to kind of marinate overnight. And I, um, you know, we get to do more scenes and talk about more. Uh, more stuff. And sometimes there are a couple of little tricks of the trade that I throw in, you know, some, some little trickier techniques, but I think, um, the main thing is to find their way into the funny. And it's great to see that happen. I really, uh, appreciate the holistic approach that you take to auditioning, uh, at least in, in audition psych that you've, that I've been to that you described. And, and I can't imagine that a lot of that doesn't bleed over into the, the comedy workshop as well, that it's just a very much like, like you, you, another thing you, you outlined <clears throat> in the email to me was you said, you know, you're learning more and more just to teach clients and students and actors that it's just about asking the question to the suspect or getting the committee to listen yes. to reason or just convinced yeah. like it's so simple when you, when you pare it down like that and you just get rid of all like the, not that these things aren't important, but like backstory and character motivation and all these different, you know, methodologies and techniques. It's like when it comes down to it, you, you're just doing this one thing as a human being, right? Right then. It's true. I think, I think to me, the stuff that I really try to eliminate is the trying, like the trying to be funny, the trying to act well, the trying to impress a cast director. Trying is death. It's terrible. I mean, you know, and what you talked about is such a, it's sort of a quiet little breakthrough I had in my work and in my coaching because it sounds so obvious. But so often we're going to an audition to try to do well as an actor or make an impression or do it right or do it in the way that they want. When if you really focus on, I'm going to figure out if this suspect is guilty. It's a, it is, I'm telling you, it is such a little key to happier and more fulfilling auditions. You're just doing the character's job. That character doesn't give a shit if you're a good actor or not. That character doesn't care if you get cast or if the casting director likes you. That character needs to find out if the suspect is guilty, you know, or needs to make sure that her husband knows how much she loves him. And, and that, you know, when you, really embrace the character's mission what the character needs to do uh, you, you kind of sail over all these kind of potholes in the road it's so simple though right it is and I'm, I'm getting i'm actually getting goosebumps as you're talking because i'm thinking back to all the auditions that i thought i nailed i prepped for and i hired coaches and i i choreographed every emotional beat every hand gesture and i went in there and i was like flying high and i didn't get the part and then almost Almost everything that I have booked was when I was like, I think I'm going to quit acting today. Like literally, I was like, as soon as I'm done with this stupid audition, I'm going to call my agent and tell him it's done. It's over. I'm moving to Denver or wherever. And then I book, I book every single time. And it's because something about that not trying comes through. I, I think what, when you're in that state, you're, you're just going to enjoy acting, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. Well, you know the mantra that I teach in my in my audition psych class is you're not getting the fucking job. Yeah. We, we can curse on this show, right? Because I've done it like all five times. Yeah, let it fly. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, but I live by you're not getting the fucking job because almost every time you're not getting the fucking job and trying to get the job is so not conducive to getting the job. It, we put ourselves in this terrible straitjacket as actors uh, and it, it's just not conducive. It doesn't It doesn't work like that. All those stories are true when people are like, well, I don't care about it, and then I get it, or I was quitting, and I get it. But, but I, you can't make yourself want to quit the business or not care about a part. But what you can do is go, that's not what I'm doing today. I'm not trying to get a part because I'm not going to get it. I'm going to go play this part. I'm going to, make sure, I'm going to tell the patient to make sure that they know what's in their chart today 
you know, or I'm going to, you know, find out how the customer wants his haircut. That's what I'm doing today. That's who I am. Yeah, I, I had a, a, a mini breakthrough actually in a scene, a scene I was doing in a play once. It's just a tough play to do. And I remember just not wanting to go on stage because I was just so emotionally like out of touch with everything. I was like, I just, I, I don't want to do this. And so I was like, what if, what if the character felt that way? And then I, I did that and I had this, I had this huge breakthrough. So I went out there and my character all of a sudden just was like, bleh. And it just felt so effortless. And I started bringing that into my auditions as well. And I was like, I don't need to go in here and act and put on some emotion 99% of the time. I can just be, and you teach this in, in audition psych, you can just go in with the energy you have and just be. Yeah, it's a little tricky because I, I don't ever mean to suggest that people shouldn't do their acting work and create this, the, the state of mind that they want their character to be in. But there are days when you can't do that. You know, it's, yeah, like you said, like there are days where if that doesn't work, here's the alternative approach. I remember you, but I, but the, you know, the, again, I'm going to repeat myself. You can always cut it out. But to me, the thing that never works is auditioning with the effort to try to impress a casting director or get a, get, or get a job. None of us knows how to do that. Well, there's a, a girl in one of my workshops and she started laughing when I was talking about this. And I said, what's so funny? She goes, it's just so freeing. She said, I, what's funny is I had an audition yesterday where my character was begging for her life, and I can do that. I just can't get a job. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. We know how to do yeah. that. You know. Yeah. Now, one thing you also mentioned was that you said, you know, when you're when you're working with actors and clients and students, and you're saying like, it's not about acting well. Like, stop trying to do that. You know, again, just question the suspect, tell the the patient, you know, what the situation is. You say it's especially true, especially difficult to do this with the smaller on screen parts. And that those parts are sometimes the hardest. So, so why is that, do you find? Oh, God. I'm so glad you asked me about that. Um, you know, the one and two liners are really, really hard for a number of reasons. Typically, it's, you know, less experienced actors who are going in for them. And it feels like you're shot out of a cannon. You've got one shot to dazzle them and you're done. And the, the pressure on that moment to try to do it in some fascinating way that's different and all these things is, uh, it, it can really screw you up. And you're so self-conscious and your face looks twitchy because you're, you know, you're watching yourself. And the thing that's hard for actors, and this is, this is just those parts I'm particularly talking about on TV and film, very often they don't need anything from that character other than find out if the customer wants more coffee, you know. And it's hard for us to do just that and not put some spin on it or try to stand out. They really, you know, when you watch the movie or the TV show, think about what you want in that role. Nothing, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. nothing, not some, not some big emotional arc. I mean, and I, I think people do that to try to um, stand out, but it's, it's not what that job requires. Uh, I mean, I was coaching somebody the other day for a, a reporter. Reporters are very hard to play because they don't have an emotional attachment. That's their job is not to. Uh, and to just try to get the governor to answer a question. That's it. That's your whole job that day. And, and again, I'm speaking from experience. This is how I built my resume was on those little things. I approach them again, trying to do some magical thing that's going to make somebody hire them. And there is no there there. You know, uh, uh, to, to just dare to go in and say, buddy, you have to move your car. You can't, you can't park there. And just do that. Just let them know. That's the whole day. Yeah. That's it. Actors in LA are very familiar with that scenario. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. 
Yeah, you know, um, and one thing that, that's coming to mind as you're talking about this is everything around that delivery of the audition process. So going in and communicating, whether with words or just body language or voice tone, like you said in the last time we the last time we talked, you talked about how like when you go in, you are the professional. Like you are the surgeon giving surgery to the patient. That's, that's the, that's the level of professionalism to client that you're bringing to this. And so when you go in and you're just like, okay, you got to move your car. Can you talk a little bit about more about, um, all the other pieces of the puzzle? Like when it comes to just walking in, like, how do you do it when you walk into a room and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm an actor. This is what I do. Like you said, uh, in the last interview and the, the I'm, I go around to place to place, I sell my wares is there anything specifically that you found through trial and error? It's like, okay, this doesn't work when I tried to do such and such, but it always works when I do this. And this is, this is beyond above and beyond the acting part. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm going to answer your question in a tricky way. What I have found doesn't work is trying to find something that works every time <laughs> because <laughs> like every cast, every cast and director is different. Uh, everybody, you know, we, we talk, we talk about them as if they're this big, they, you know, what do they want? So, you know, there are actors going, well, do you shake their hand? Do you smile? Do you have a catchphrase? And I'm like, no, I just come in to do my work. And because I've gotten myself so much calmer about the process, I'm open to the impulses. If they want to chat, we chat. And this is going to sound braggy. It's it, but it's, I like that. I've gotten to the point where we might talk about, a, a movie we saw or a TV show we watched or not or nothing, you know, if we feel like it or if we know each other, but most of the time just come to the damn work, get the guy to move his car. Uh, that's it. But, but, you know, I think, um, a lot of people are going, well, you know, what does Michael do in that room? And uh, there, listen, uh, there isn't any special thing that I do. Um, uh, and I should add I, you know, I, I like being candid about these things because I think it helps listeners. I've just come off a really long non-booking period. You know, uh, I, I, people think of me as this guy who works constantly. And it's it's really especially weird right now because I'm, I'm on TV on several channels at once. I did that work last year. You know, so 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 it's not like I book everything. Uh, you know, I, I, I mostly don't just like everybody else. I, I probably have more auditions, but I mostly don't book, you know, so it isn't like, what is this magical man doing in these rooms? <laughs> it's I'm mostly getting rejected. That's what I'm doing. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what, what would you say? Do you, do you, could you put your ratio, your booking ratio into numbers between how much you book versus how much you just audition? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's very, it's a very tricky, what do you call it? Um, algorithm? What's it called? I don't know yeah. what the thing is. I, I just I asked you know David H. Lawrence, who's a mutual friend of ours, and who's who who's so great. He's got that percentage point down to like the second or third decimal place. Yeah. Like well, he, he, know, he well, knows exactly how much he books. I was actually talking to the other to him the other day. He's so much more organized and brainy than I am. <laughs> I'm a little bit slow. Throw throw the spaghetti up against the wall. But you know, uh, one of the reasons it's harder to answer is I I. I sort of go on more auditions, but I sort of go on fewer because my agents don't want me to do certain things. So it's, you know, it's a little bit more selective. So I, I couldn't even guess. I couldn't guess. I'm just, you know, I, I just broke a six month dry, dry spell. So I'm grateful for that. Wow. That's all you, I know. you hadn't, yeah. you hadn't booked or shot anything in six months. I haven't had a TV, uh, an on, on camera job in six months. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Now within that time I directed a play 
you know, um, I, I've done a reading or two, you know, I had this weird, weird job that dropped out of the sky that involved me singing at Carnegie Hall. Long story. So, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. But other than, but, but mostly I've been working on two books that I'm writing and I've been coaching and yeah. So it's, it's not like, uh, I don't want anybody to look at me and think, yeah, he's got it all wrapped up because I don't. Um, but I think what I've done is sort of take some of the agony out of the process, which is much more important to me is to enjoy the auditions. You know, I, I keep referencing it. Six or eight months ago, I, I auditioned for a production of All My Sons. You know, it's Arthur Miller. It's this great writing. Yeah. And I don't get to audition a lot for Arthur Miller plays. Now, I, I didn't get cast in it, but I wouldn't have missed for the world the chance to do Arthur Miller, to do all the detective work, to do the characterization and have somebody who stopped their day to watch me do that, man, that's, that's it. That's the high, you know, if you could learn to relish those couple of moments in the room and not try to affect an outcome, God, you just win. You win. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's fun. Like I, I would go back and do it again, even knowing that I wasn't going to get the part because it's Arthur Miller, you know, and I, I think we forget that we love this stuff. You know? Yeah. I remember my agent telling me something that changed my, my whole relationship to all this. He said, uh, you know, when you audition, like when you go in the room, that's your first day of work. Like you should be as prepared as if they were, you know, you were in wardrobe, makeup and all that. And you were filming. That's your first day of work. And if you don't get called back, then that was your last day of work as well. And that's fine. But that's, that's, fine. that's the level of commitment that you should have. Well, and again, the reason I approach well, the auditions with the dedication I do is because I'm not getting the fucking job. <laughs> I'm giving one performance in yeah. this Arthur Miller play. I'm gonna, I'm gonna enjoy the hell out of it. Hey, folks! Welcome back to the bookends. Uh, I hope you enjoyed part one of this interview as much as I did. I got a chance to listen to it right before we started recording, Trev. Um, great job. Uh, love this man. Love his mindset. Love his sense of humor. Um, and as we just mentioned before the interview started, love his generosity, his willingness to sort of give it away. All right. What is your pick of the week, brother? I'm a big fan of Rich Roll. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners listening right now who know who that is. Uh, for those of you who don't, Rich Roll is an ultra-endurance uh, athlete. He does like those Ultraman uh, marathon things. But anyway, I've been following Rich Roll. Rich Roll's got a great podcast, and one of his guests, his recurring guest, is this guy named John Joseph. And John Joseph is like your quintessential New Yorker. He's got a really interesting story. He's in like a punk band and he was in jail for a while because of dealing drugs, but now he's in his fifties and he's also like a, you know, a crazy triathlete and he's a very outspoken vegan. And he's about as New York as you get from the way he talks to how he dresses and, and he's just a really entertaining guy. Uh, he's got a new web series and it's called the hard truth. And it's essentially him, just sort of going about his day, but also, you know, cooking these really great looking vegan meals in the kitchen. And he talks about his past and some of the stranger, um, you know, quote unquote, stranger um, sort of habits he's adopted over the years. His web series is awesome. It's called The Hard Truth. His name is John Joseph. There's a link to it on our website. Check it out. The episodes are maybe 10, 12 minutes. You can also listen to his interviews on the Rich Roll podcast. He's been on there two or three times and he's just a fascinating guy. And yeah, if you're looking for a few entertaining minutes on YouTube. Check out John Joseph's The Hard Truth web series. There's also, I should just add this real quickly, there's also a great like 20-minute, I, I think it's a Vice documentary or maybe it's one of those 
uh, some sort of like, you know, mini web documentary about him. That's also really cool. I'll find a link for that and put it on the website as well. Wow. Well, uh, so when, uh, when we were traveling, um, I knew I wanted to do some reading and I, have been putting off. I haven't seen. Well, I can't say this anymore. But I had uh, at the time I had never seen a single episode of Game of Thrones, and at this point I've only seen the trailer. And I did that on or not the trailer, the uh, the pilot. I did that on purpose because I really, really wanted to read the books before I uh, I watched the show. And of course, it's like one of those things where you know now years have gone by and I haven't picked them up, but I picked one. I picked up, we, we actually, Jasmine and I found all five, all the, the first five books in a, in a complete sort of, uh, series that was on sales, super steep discount on Kindle one time. And so I got all five books in one sort of compilation for like, I don't remember what it was like $20 or something like that. So can't, you know, can't beat the price. And, um, and I just picked it up, uh, you know, when we, when we left, like literally when we were at LAX before we left to, to, to Spain and got through half the book by the time we got home. And those are big, big books, uh, uh, very thick and, and, and kind of dense, especially when it comes to like the genealogy stuff, like, you know, trying to keep track of like the, the families in, in the series. And I loved it. I loved it. So, I, you know, even if you've seen the show, I would encourage you to go back and, and, and read the books because, you know, I was like, I can't remember, like a quarter of the way, a third of the way through the book before the end of the pilot episode uh, event happened. So I know they're leaving out tons and tons and tons of stuff out of the um, out of the, the, the TV show, um, as they always do when some book gets converted into a, a TV show or a, or a film. But um it's it's they're really good like he's a good writer and it's really interesting and it's very tolkien-esque uh obviously but um you know i i i can't recommend i, I just look i'm having a blast like it's really fun uh read so um that's my pick i know it's uh it's dated and a lot of people are probably you know waiting for the next episode of the TV show to come out. But if you've never picked up the books, uh, I would encourage you to do so. Do so. So game of Thrones, that's my pick of the week. Awesome. Uh, we do have a listener pick of the week. We want to quickly give a shout out to this comes to us from JD. JD wrote in quite a while ago with, uh, a book that, um, that's called the mind body prescription by a guy named Dr. John E. Sarno. Um, I believe that, this doctor actually recently passed away, uh, which I'm bummed to hear. But the way JD describes it, uh, I immediately went out and ordered the book, and it just got to it just got delivered like a week or two ago. So I'm excited to to read it. But JD says um, this book helped alleviate back pain and muscle spasms and paralysis and panic attacks, all these things that uh, JD never had to deal with before. Long story short, JD says, they, uh, I went to the doctors, I got x-rays done, I went through physical therapy, nothing was helping, a friend recommended this book, and this book talks about how certain personality types, for example, perfectionists or goodists, deal with a lot of repressed emotions that the brain gets scared of, and whenever it panics, it then diverts attention by hurting you. 
Uh, for instance, your back, your neck, your hip, pain and injuries manifesting differently in different people. JD says, I'm still going through the treatment process, but I can actually work out and dance again without fear of another episode of spasms or panic attacks. And with our profession where we deal with intense emotions, I think this may be valuable. I second that. I can't wait to dig into this book. And this is not the first time I've heard this book spoken of very highly. This sounds fascinating, man. And what a great pick for JD to, to make the connection with, uh, you know, this book and, and artists in general, but actors and specifically. That's that's great. Uh, thank you for that, JD. So that's uh, John Joseph's The Hard Truth web series from Trev there. Uh, Game of Thrones, the book now in paper form or digital form man you can't even make that joke anymore and the mind body prescription by dr john e sarno via jd out in new york thank you for that anything else or shall we uh, roll on out of here bro i think we can get out of here the only thing i wanted to mention is that uh, make sure you check out auditionpsych101.com for uh, an up-to-date list of when and where you can um, attend one of michael kostroff's workshops be sure to check that out you can get on his mailing list which is just something that every actor should be on and um and i hope you guys get to experience uh some of his work and meet him in person because he's like i said he's a you know stellar human being good person i know so that does it for episode 296 which was produced and co-hosted by me trevor algott and aj meyer of course team iap also includes jen levin gadala gubrak deborah smith and grace gordon Visit us online on the interwebs at insideacting.net to sign up for our weekly email dispatch and listen to all of our episodes. That's insideacting.net. You can also find us on social media and wherever you get your podcasts. If you got a minute, you can uh, hop on over to iTunes, leave us a review, especially the ones of the five-star variety. Those really help us out a lot. If you don't want to leave a five-star Write us, call us, let us know why. We still have a voicemail for crying out loud that uh, is like uh, uh, the the set of an old western with like a tumbleweed going across. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, one two and three two actors two and three two 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 eight six seven seven. Still have that memorized, wow, man. That's still, crazy. Still so. got it. That's still impressive. got it. Still up there somewhere. Big thanks to our sponsors, Rehearsal Pro and Vo to Go Go, and a big thanks to you guys listening. Uh, this is your podcast as much as anybody else's. So uh, be sure to let us know what you like, what you don't like, and what you want to see more of. You can also visit our website to get links to everything that we are doing and talking about in this and every episode. And if you'd like and you really want to see the show continue, a great way to do it is to show your support financially by chipping in to help us out with production costs, traveling costs, all that fun stuff. Uh, you can do that online at insideacting.net. Yeah, you'll see it there. That's where you can go to learn all about the show and, and uh, support us. And that's it for episode 296 of Inside Acting. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, rise above. Rise above.